Hello, everyone, and welcome to Singularity Podcast. Singularity Podcast is a feature of Singularity Weblog, where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. As you may already know, my name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and as always, I will be the man with the questions. Today, I'm privileged to have George Tvorsky as my guest with the answers. George is a Canadian futurist, ethicist, and animal rights advocate who has written and spoken extensively about the impacts of cutting-edge science and technology, particularly as they pertain to the improvement of human performance and experience. George is currently serving on the Board of Directors for the Institute of Ethics and Emerging Technologies. Hi, George, and welcome to Singularity Podcast. It is great to have you here today. Hi, Nicola. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Uh, It is entirely our pleasure, George. So without further ado, let me start the interview with the following question. George, can you please tell us a little bit more about yourself, such as your background and your education, but especially why and how you got interested in issues such as the technological singularity and transhumanism? Um, It it goes way back to to my teenage years, I'd have to think. Uh, I was very much at the time uh, interested in uh, the works of Carl Sagan, for example, and uh, he, he really introduced me to the world of science and rational thinking and uh, just, just the way he, he, he talked about science and the way he wrote about science is he made it unbelievably interesting and fascinating. Whereas uh, academically, I always struggled in the sciences and I never really had that kind of same kind of um, enthusiasm uh, in, in school that I had uh, just picking up his books and watching his documentaries and so on. Um, then um, it never actually translated to anything more than just a, a hobby or a passing interest. But uh, I did spend uh, my university years learning history, and I do have a degree in history. I spent uh, six years or so learning uh, and studying about, uh, in, in particular, um, political ideology uh, fascinated me. History of science fascinated me as well. Uh, so I have a very rich background in, in those particular areas. And I like to joke that uh, the first half of my life I pretty much spent, uh, or at least the first, hopefully not the first half of my life, but a, a good portion of, the, of, uh, of uh, my initial uh, part of my life looking back and that uh, now I, I'm tending to look a bit forward. And what happened was uh, in and around um, 10 years ago, I stumbled uh, across quite accidentally, uh, just researching uh, some co- things on cosmology, I stumbled across some transhumanist-related websites, most notably that of Nick Bostrom. Uh, for those who might be unfamiliar with, un- unfamiliar with Nick Bostrom, Nick is a co-founder of the World Transhumanist Association, and he currently teaches philosophy at Oxford. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a very, he's just an absolutely uh, fascinating uh, philosopher and academic who's done some seminal work in uh, post-human studies, in uh, trying to uh, parse out uh, the nature and the development of uh, artificial superintelligence and issues like that. And even though I was very much a fan of science fiction, uh, I had never come across these ideas uh, in in this kind of detail and in this kind of seriousness as well. I mean, I'd always been fascinated by things like cyborgs and artificial intelligence. But they always just kind of floated in the background as either impossibilities or things that were really outside of um, reality, at least certainly outside the reality of my given lifespan or even our scientific uh, 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 outreach. But as I read up on not just Bostrom, um, then I obviously after that discovered some of the other thinkers in the same field, writers like Hans Moravec, Eric Drexler, of course Ray Kurzweil. And just becoming involved as well within the community of the world, what was at the time the world 
the World Transhumanist Association, what is now uh, Humanity Plus, mm-hmm. I definitely just uh, uh, picked up uh, very quickly. And uh, like I said, even though I don't have a science background, uh, I like to describe myself as a bit of an autodidact. Everything that I know and that I've learned, I've, I've just picked up through voracious reading, but also just through you know p- uh, picking off everybody's brains. And just I love conversation. Uh, I love the networking aspect and just learning from others and learning from the experts and being able to identify who's got some important things to say. And uh, that's that's pretty much um, my introduction there. But one thing that very quickly happened, I noticed uh, when I when I did become involved, uh, and this is now about eight years ago or so, was I had a a real specific leaning towards the ethical side of things, uh, bioethics in particular. I was absolutely fascinated, and I still am. Um, about the implications of these technologies to the human condition, in particular the transhumanist type technologies, the whole uh, area as it pertains to enhancement and augmentation, um, reproductive freedoms, morphological rights, uh, cognitive liberties. Uh, those sorts of issues um, speak to me very profoundly, and I love to study uh, those things and love to discuss those sorts of things. So it kind of hybridized uh, naturally into that particular area. And then, of course, uh, the animal rights work that I do as well. I think is very much uh, riffs off this kind of work, uh, specifically the whole idea that uh, when, when, when you're talking about transhumanism and the potential for there to be quote-unquote transhumans, you are talking quite necessarily by definition about something that is not human, but something that at the same time deserves moral consideration, uh, something that still is a, is a living, breathing, thinking creature. Uh, that that uh, experiences subjective awareness, has emotional capacities, and so on. Uh, we typically like to think of these entities in the transhumanist community as beings that are uh, perhaps, uh, uh, quote-unquote, more than human or, or a bit more advanced than human. But I quickly realized that there are already many, many persons in amongst in and amongst us that, that qualify as such persons, and those are many of our uh, non-human animal friends. So I have a, I have a very deep fascination in studying uh, animal cognition and animal awareness uh, and it basically extending empathy and consideration into that particular area as well. So that's my long-winded way of kind of answering the question how I kind of got from there to here. There's obviously a lot more to it than that. Everything, I mean, we all we all are really the sum of our parts. I mean, I didn't get into, into for example, my religious upbringing and uh, the kind of uh, uh, um, turnaround that happened to me both as a teenager and as, a, as someone in my late 20s. It's definitely, we do kind of struggle, I think, our whole lives with uh, – existential issues and religious and spiritual mm-hmm. issues. And that very much also informs, I think, and guides us into, into certain areas of inquiry. So definitely uh, don't want to paint even a, you know, a simplistic picture of myself. I think that, goes, that holds true for everybody. We are very complicated yeah. in terms of uh, who we are and how we got to where we are now. Yeah, and, and we are definitely going to cover many of those issues that you just mentioned briefly. But it's very interesting because I also myself started um, – in the field of philosophy first, then I moved on to political science with a strong emphasis on ethics and mainly um, ethics during the time of war, uh, just war theory and so on. And then I, you know, if you study political science, you have to know economics. So I started studying economics. And when I was doing my MA in in political science, I ended up writing a, a paper called Hacking Destiny critical security and the inter- at the intersection of machine and human intelligence. So in a very sort of roundabout way, I kind of also ended up where, we, where you are or somewhere close to where you are now. And by that, I mean that I'm also very much interested in, obviously, in issues of transhumanism and the technological singularity. 
You know, it's interesting, if I might interrupt, I, I, I do, listening to your story is quite interesting, but I think that you and I are still odd cases. And what I mean by that is I've gotten to know so many individuals involved in the community. Uh, you do tend to see uh, certain convergences in terms of how they, they came to be involved. And uh, almost, ex- well, I would say almost exclusively, but a, a good portion come through the computer science or computer theory route. Basically, you have computer nerds that have latched onto these ideas uh, pretty much yeah. from day one, and they naturally uh, work their way into it. Another conduit uh, definitely is the life extension community, where mm-hmm. you have individuals who are interested in even just um, uh, you know rather laissez-faire approaches to life extension, um, and then right on through to hardcore approaches like uh, full-on cryonics members and uh, caloric restriction folks. So mm-hmm. they then in turn naturally kind of get turned on to the transhumanist memes as well. So yeah. I'm always fascinated, uh, Nicola, to kind of find out some of the different avenues that people have uh, taken to kind of uh, get to this kind of a particular field. Yeah, it's it's kind of unpredictable where you start and where you end up sometimes in life. That's true. That's the the most interesting part of it is that you start going somewhere, but you don't know where you're going to end up, I think. That's right. And you can only really go uh, where your interests take you. And uh, again, I like your story because you clearly found something that touched a nerve that maybe this wasn't your particular area of uh, expertise, but there was clearly something to it that spoke to you, that, yeah, there's some, yeah. there's a, that there's a realness to it that deserves some more uh, consideration. And I, I totally get that. Absolutely, yes. But uh, this podcast is more focused about you and your accomplishments. <laughs> so let's get back on topic here. <laughs> um, I would ask you a couple of more uh, personal questions before we zoom in on transhumanism and technological singularity issues. Uh, because you mentioned them, and and I kind of find find it interesting to dig a little deeper into the a person's background. Um, those two issues that I want to ask you about are the issues about religion, and whether you have any official uh, any affiliations with any religion, past or present, and also on the level of your animal rights work, are you a vegetarian? Um. Uh, I am vegetarian, uh, definitely um, as part of my, uh, uh, I guess my, uh, I mean, I do it for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is the um, uh, the ethical side, there's the health side and environmental side. So that's definitely, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, definitely part of, uh, uh, part of uh, what I, what I do. Yeah. Um, back to my religious upbringing, uh, my parents, they uh, immigrated from the former Czechoslovakia back in uh, 1968. I was born here in Canada. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a country that is uh, c- can be very much characterized by its Roman Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, it, uh, I was uh, put into a ca- – not that my parents were particularly religious, but they, uh, they felt it important and right to put me into a Catholic school. And even as a child, it felt right. Um, I can remember being scared to death of the priests, and I'm sure lots of Catholic uh, kids <laughs> can relate to that. It's just it's awful. It's dreadful. And uh, even the whole confessional thing still sends, you know, chills up the back of my spine. And, and I, never re- I never was a believer, like a big B believer. Uh, there was always this voice in my mind that said, this is strange. There's, like, there's no way this could possibly be real. And uh, that's kind of um, why uh, I mentioned earlier when I discovered the writings of Carl Sagan and uh, other writers, even science fiction writers, I was like, Okay, as breath of fresh air, I was like, I'm, I'm not alone out there, that there is a whole world worth exploring here uh, where you can kind of express your skepticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the same time, you, I mean, and Richard Dawkins is famous for saying this, that 
uh, and even Carl Sagan as well, that uh, the universe as presented really by science is far more profound and far more mysterious and uh, sublime than anything ever put out by religion. And uh, that's it's so, it's so absolutely true. Yeah. And uh, so I managed to kind of uh, resist the shackles of uh, the, my uh, Catholic upbringing when I was an adolescent and definitely throughout high school. And then uh, the strange thing happened, though, um, and I'm wondering even if some of your listeners might relate to this, but um, uh, when I was in my mid-20s, I got married. And in order for us to be married in a church, which is what everybody's supposed to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we had to start taking um, uh, classes, uh, uh, and uh, my ex-wife at the time, uh, she's not my ex-wife, but my fiancé at the time was a uh, uh, was an Anglican, and so we started going to an Anglican church and going to the classes, mm-hmm. and one thing led to another. Next thing you know, and it's, it's, it's kind of it's very strange, the paths that we take, but I was a regular churchgoer at an Anglican church. And I, de- I do tend to look back on that time of my life because I had other things going on as well in terms of uh, schooling, in terms of uh, work and having children and uh, those sorts of burdens uh, that there is a kind of part of you that sleepwalks a little bit when it gets to some uh, deeper, meaningful issues. You just kind of go through the motions and do what you think you're, you just do what you think you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And now this is going to sound unbelievably cliched. But it's the truth. Uh, what happened to me, what kind of cajoled me out of all this was 9-11. And mm. uh, I'm, I'm sure lots of people might have similar stories, but that's what happened to me. Just, I mean, that day was particularly disturbing for me, and it, it did rock my world because it, it really was a slap in the face. It really woke me up to, uh, to reality that, you know, there, there is more to, to the big picture than things like, you know, uh, Bill Clinton sex scandals, you know, and, and uh, <laughs> O.J. Simpson trials, you know, these are the kinds of banalities that characterize the 1990s, which is really the kind of what I'm talking about in terms of sleepwalking through that particular decade. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's a huge contrast. I mean, think, we can think now the difference between the 90s and uh, the current decade is pretty dramatic. And it's quite obvious that the dividing line there was the events of uh, 9-11. So what happened to me after that was a bit of an existential crisis. I started to uh, stop going to church. And uh, I mean, I'm not going to say that it was the sole reason for my marriage collapsing, but let's just say it was a significant contributor to that. And uh, trying to explore some new avenues of inquiry. And uh, certainly uh, that was in and around that time that I discovered uh, things like transhumanism mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, post-human studies and life extension. But what also was really interesting for me uh, and really worked uh, at the same time in a very complementary sort of way was starting to discover Eastern philosophies and Eastern religion. Mm. And this is an area that I'd completely neglected uh, prior to this stage in my life. Yeah. And uh, it, it was just, it almost seemed to be following me around. It was kind of funny. Uh, I wasn't deliberately looking or, you know, hunting down uh, the teachings of let's say Buddhism or what have you, but they were, they were there suddenly in my face and, uh, I just naturally seemed to then therefore gravitate toward it. And uh, for a while, I was very, very seriously uh, investigating this area. I would, uh, Buddhism in particular, and mm-hmm. I was very much fascinated uh, because I was somebody who was uh, considered myself at this point secular. 
that was that was very refreshing to find the work, for example, of uh, the American Buddhist Stephen Batchelor, who puts out he put out a famous book called Buddhism Without Beliefs, mm-hmm. and he presented this this picture of uh, or, or this presentation of Buddhism that was completely stripped of all of its metaphysics and said actually this is probably the most genuine interpretation that we have of Buddhism is one in which there is not necessarily a belief in reincarnation and and a, and a cosmological kind of a sense of karma. That uh, what's important is uh, the, the fundamentals in, walk, in walking the Dharma uh, in the way as put out uh, by the Buddha uh, many many years ago. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I took that very seriously, and I and then I, I meditated very seriously for for a good stretch. Even uh, started teaching meditation class a little bit, and there was nothing about uh, I felt uh, in the Buddhist teachings that contradicted. Uh, the, the transhumanist work that I was doing as well. In fact, I managed to latch on as well to a kind of a niche community within the transhumanists uh, who are transhumanist Buddhists, who, uh, what we kind of describe ourselves now as this, uh, the cyborg Buddhists. And this group includes uh, uh, the executive director of the IEET, James Hughes, and uh, Michael Latora, who teaches in New Mexico. And uh, we still keep in touch, and we still have uh, some lofty plans for kind of um, meeting, having these two worlds kind of speak together, which is really... Uh, you know, there's at, at its heart, in many ways, transhumanism is about um, eliminating a lot of the suffering and infirmary that goes on in the world, and just having healthier, happier people. And I think those are some goals that um, many of us, regardless of our backgrounds, can somewhat agree on. Yeah, I remember watching actually an interview with the Dalai Lama not long ago, where he was discussing actually the issue of the technological singularity, and based on that conversation, I was a little surprised to find out that it's totally okay for him. Like the merging of machine and, and man was totally okay. <laughs> yes. There was no uh, uh, religious or any other opposition to, to that tendency whatsoever. Yeah, uh, and uh, th- th- sorry, you can continue there. Yeah, uh, go ahead, go ahead. I just want to say there, uh, and, and that's, he's, he is, he's being genuine, and uh, he's yeah. also being true very much to uh, the, uh, some of the core Buddhist teachings, which is ultimately uh, what you're, what, what's important in the world, what's important in the universe uh, to, uh, to an extreme degree is the quality of subjective experience. Uh, the observer is, has, deser- is, has central primacy uh, in Buddhist teachings, uh, externalities don't don't really matter so much, and neither do abstractions. And that's really what Buddhism is about: is eliminating as many abstractions and distractions as possible, uh, so that we can get further get to the truth and uh, and what really matters to people. And what really matters to people is how you feel, how you interact with others, how you treat others, how you are treated, and so on. Mm-hmm. And to suggest, for example, that um, you could, for example, uh, let's say, uh, uh, reduce um, uh, some kind of mental anguish like depression or even uh, something more severe like uh, schizophrenia mm-hmm. through, let's say, you know, cybernetic implants. I, this is not a bad example, but uh, let's just say for the sake of argument that this is something that's possible. There would be no reason for, uh, for a Buddhist to, to make this objection. What characterizes a lot of the objections here in the West is these, these sorts of things, let's say uh, some kind of biological uh, augmentation, genetic or even cybernetic. Uh, 90% of the time what happens is you fall back on the naturalistic fallacy, which is that there's what, what's natural is good and what man creates or what is synthetic is inherently bad and that we're violating some kind of natural order. 
you talk to a Buddhist about that and they have no <laughs> idea what you're saying. No idea. Not like to, and that, the naturalist fallacy to the Buddhist mindset uh, is, is absolutely nonsensical. Uh, it's yeah. that these kinds of delineations that we have kind of um, made up here uh, in the West uh, just, just doesn't really fly. And, and, and secondly, what also works, well, many things kind of work in concert with transhumanist ideas. And the other is that uh, the idea of the self and again, this is another thing that's perhaps rooted in uh, our uh, kind of Judeo, the, the Judeo-Christian background, which suggests that there's ensoulment happening uh, amongst all humans, that we have an essence, a soul, a spirit, some kind of vital spark that makes us the person, the specific person, who you are. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we're finding through the neurosciences uh, and something that Buddhism has taught for many, many years is there is no such thing as a singular immutable self or person. Like if I was to point to your brain right now, uh, Nicola, I'd say, or ask you to point to your brain, like what part of your brain is you? Like what's <laughs> yourself? Like was it that part there or is it that part there? Moreover, as I'm sure you know, uh, who you are really is just the sum of what your brain is computing at any given point in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are the moment to moment computation or processing of your brain. And that's subject to change in every passing moment. And, and you will change. I mean, your moods will change. Like when you are in extreme anguish or whether, whether you are crying or laughing, there's, there's something profoundly different about who you are. Your, your actual makeup, your, your very essence of being has profoundly changed. And we also know that through life we change as individuals, uh, whether it be just through normal change uh, as we get older or also it could be through things like um, uh, the ravages of aging, things like Alzheimer's and, or even through things like injury. So we know that there is no singular self that can be preserved um, and what some of the Buddhists and transhumanists would say is that it doesn't necessarily need to, pre- need to be preserved. What needs to happen more is just a simple respect of that ongoing person who's experiencing the world from moment to moment and what we can do to um, make that experience as pleasant as possible and as free from suffering as is possible. Yeah, there was a period in my life when I was very much uh, deeply involved in practicing Aikido and uh, very much interested in Japanese Zen Buddhism in particular. So I totally uh, associate with, with what you're saying. But let me dig in a little bit deeper behind the motivation uh, of the work that you do. Um, I gather there's the element of alleviating suffering there, but would you call your motivation humanitarian, religious, um, result of your sort of uh, curiosity for knowledge, or what is your motivation? Right. Um, I'll, I'll take two out of the three there uh, right off the <laughs> bat. Uh, definitely uh, the humanitarian aspect. Uh, I think we all like to think that uh, we can we can do something that's of import and of substance, mm-hmm. and uh, how we can actually do that given our circumstances is often a very difficult question. I mean, not every not every one of us can be a Mother Teresa mm-hmm. uh, and give up you know absolutely uh, give ourselves up completely to the needs of others. I mean, I can't go there. Most people really can't go there. Uh, but to, to another point that you addressed there, um, uh, it's also a nice way for me at the same time to also exert my uh, my uh, my thirst for um, intellectual discourse. So if I can do both, if I can kind of get the good word out mm-hmm. and and perhaps even you know uh, maybe come up with some novel ideas or maybe even influence uh, others to change their ways or even influence the let's say the direction of certain uh, types of uh, biotechnological development, mm-hmm. uh, then uh, I've kind of really fed uh, fed uh, 
two birds with one seed there. Uh, so that's definitely my my two primary motivations. I would say is one to keep myself absolutely you know stimulated and keep myself active and keep my brain working because uh, that's extremely important to me. Uh, but secondly, again, I really I really do think and and I really do hope that in some small way and and perhaps I don't believe this naively that I can in fact. Um, you know, make a bit of a difference, and and I and and I, I when I say that I'm perhaps saying that naively, I'm perhaps not even necessarily being fair to myself because I do get feedback from uh, people that I've spoken to, whether it be in a lecture or people that have read my blog, um, and that they actually tell me that you know because of something I wrote or something that I said, it's made a difference in their lives. Whether it be that they now have a deeper respect for um, animal welfare. Uh, whether it be that uh, they now uh, recognize that um, you know certain, let's say, rights, reproductive rights, are more important than they had given uh, previous credence to, that um, that to me tells me that you know what, um, uh, that's if that's the least I can do. Then that's not half bad. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, uh, each one of us has it. At the very least, the butterfly effect. And in your case, I mean, I've been following your your blog and some of your other podcasts and and interviews, and and I. From my point of view, it's obviously much, much, much bigger. So, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I invited you to be a guest here because I'm pretty impressed of, of what you're doing. Well, thank you. Um, but let me see, how does the Institute of Emerging Ethics and Technology fit into what you do then? And what is the, the maybe you should start up with, what is the Institute of Emerging Ethics and Technology? The Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, it's, uh, it can be described as many different things. Uh, it could be described as uh, an ethics think tank. It could be described as a voice that's getting out a particular um, uh, uh, angle on biotechnology. But what I'll do is kind of go, go back a little bit and describe how it actually came about. Mm-hmm. Um, back during the, uh, the World Transhumanist Association days, uh, a number of the, the, the people involved with it, myself included, um, James Hughes in particular and others, uh, we, what we wanted to do was uh, have a bit more of a, uh, I guess, an academic flavored and a bit more of a proactive voice out there that was going to be in particular concerned with the ethical side of mm-hmm. uh, advancing technologies. And at the same time, one of the reasons why we felt this was necessary and I believe this is still a problem. By the way, the IEET was founded now, I would say, about five years ago or so. Um, probably not too far off from the truth. Um, that there already were a whole host of ethics organizations scattered in and around North America and in, in, in the United States in particular. Now, you also have to remember going back, we're now talking about Bush administration era as well. And their absolutely dreadful bioethics council that was headed by Leon Cass. Yeah. And these ethics groups were very much... I guess, in support, and they were very much towing the line as put out by that particular administration, So, which is my way of saying really it was very conservative, very bioconservative in that sense. So, mm-hmm. um, And they were very vocal. Many of them were Christian-backed. And, uh, so, and I, I mention that only because the Christian bioethical um, uh, standpoint is very much at odds uh, with um, what I would call the, the transhuman uh, or techno-progressive bioethical uh, standpoint. Would you uh, say it's disproportionately represented? Yes, and that was fundamentally the problem. We, yeah. we needed, we were, we desperately needed, we felt, to get a, that, that contrary voice out there. Absolutely. That there had to be a voice out there that could say, look, you know, uh, reproductive freedoms and reproductive rights and, and different ways of having babies and having different types of unions uh, with partners, 
Um, even saying things like neurological enhancers or even just learning more about how the minds work. These are good things. Uh, regenerative medicine. I mean, there's even still today, unbelievable news today uh, uh, that uh, stem cell research has been halted in the United States because of some kind of weird legislative A judge uh, order, I think. Bar. Yes. I mean, wow. So it's still a fight that needs to be fought, but even particularly back then, um, during the Bush days, uh, uh, there was a need to get the, the word out that, that regenerative medicine, and in particular the work done on stem cells, could be uh, absolutely fantastic. Everything from growing our uh, organs back with our own tissue yep. to, re- to repairing things like spinal columns, and that is no joke. That is, that is actual work that is being done in labs today. Uh, so... It was deplorable, really, and quite disgusting that there wasn't this voice out there, and uh, that and that the voices that were out there were were kind of countering um, what 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 I consider and what we as a group consider to be uh, rather important areas of progress. So uh, that's how the IET was founded uh, on those principles, mm-hmm. and what what's happened over the course of the years, and it's still uh, very much and uh, more than ever, really, it's been active. And it has an, an unbelievable set of academics that have associated with it. And uh, Mike Treder now, who is based in New York City uh, and also very much a part of this community, is working very closely with uh, Dr. James Hughes. And they're putting, putting together platforms uh, of uh, particular areas of interest. Uh, in the past, for example, we've held uh, seminars on, for example, legal implications to, um, to uh, reproductive uh, rights and freedoms. We held a seminar in Chicago three years ago on uh, the longevity dividend. So we tried to get a, a different perspective on life extension and basically say, look, uh, longer lives is actually a good thing from not just from a moral perspective, which is usually the argument, but that longer lives uh, is good from an economic and a fiscal perspective. And we had some unbelievable economists and lawyers and thinkers there putting up the charts and the graphs and showing the savings were absolutely off the top. Uh, the kinds of burdens that would be uh, alleviated from the healthcare system if we can start to extend lives uh, much further than they are now. Um, well, every and, time a human being dies, a library burns, right? The, oh, and and that that argument unto itself is is uh, is worth its weight in gold. I absolutely agree agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, a single death is a monumental tragedy. There's no question about it. And uh, when. Uh, a knock on wood, not too many people close to me um, have passed away, but when it has happened, that's the first thing that crosses my mind. Well, first thing is that I'm going to miss this person terribly, uh, but secondly, that my goodness, the, the knowledge, the wisdom, uh, the accounts, the stories are all, all gone forever and ever, and that, that, that's, a, that's a real downer for sure. And um, with the IEET, it, there's also another area uh, that I'm sure you're also very interested in. Uh, and that is the uh, is risk mitigation. And uh, we held a, a seminar about two years ago in uh, Mountain View, uh, California, on on um, creating a resilient civilization and ways in which we can uh, mitigate catastrophes and even work to prevent all out human extinction. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, I'm sure many of your listeners, this is not a, a foreign subject, but for those who it may be. Um, existential risks is is becoming an increasing concern as our yeah. technologies become more uh, potent. Um, we are certainly uh, coming into the possession of more technologies that could actually result in our undoing. So it needs to be discussed. We need to discuss uh, not just how these technologies need to be developed, but how they need to be uh, allocated, licensed, and uh, monitored, regulated, all those sorts of things, or uh, we're going to be in big trouble. So that's yeah. what we do at the IEET. And what I do there in particular 
Mm-hmm. I'm on the board of directors, so whenever uh, big decisions come down, we debate it, we discuss it, we vote on it, that sort of good stuff. Um, but I'm also a, um, a contributor uh, to uh, the site's content. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike Treder, he uh, definitely uh, he will borrow material from my blog and uh, use it on uh, on the IEET site. And for those who don't visit the IEET site on a regular basis, I suggest that you do because, like I said. Um, the quality of uh, the writers and thinkers uh, in that organization are phenomenal. Everyone from Jume Cassio, uh, who's uh, definitely a, a big player, uh, one listed as a, amongst foreign policies uh, top thinkers of the year. And uh, he's got interesting things to say about geoengineering and other environmental concerns. And he's also very much interested in things like singularity studies and so on. And Douglas, Ru- Douglas Rushkoff's out there and, uh, and others. So it's... Uh, Definitely a great. Uh, that's this is kind of the think tank aspect to it, which is just wonderful, and it's just a great place to have have some food for thought. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of Douglas Rushkoff too, by the way. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, um, and on on the topic of death, I have to say though that I mean that's a sort of a very polarizing issue, but for me it was always a very simple one. Um, of course, based on my life experience, because. Um, to share with you, I mean, when I was 13 years old, my mother was 38, 38 and a half, and she passed away from cancer. And mm-hmm. for me, it was fairly obvious and self-evident ever since that, then, or that moment at least, if not before that, that death could never be a good thing, that, that it's obviously something not good, n- not a happy occasion, and yeah. to be avoided almost yeah. Uh, so, exactly as I said before, every time a human being dies, a library burns. So it's a loss that's yeah. irreparably, irrevocably. Yeah. And uh, as computer theorist Eliezer Yudkowsky has said, he said that experiencing the death of a loved one is not anything any sentient person should ever have to experience. And I think that's very well put. <laughs> yeah. Even though I, I would go even beyond that because it's not only rationally but predominantly emotionally i think that we experience that loss i mean or at least at both levels at at the sentient level and and also at the sort of emotional level um but let us uh zoom a little bit more into the, the issues and maybe a good way to start would be to define what in your opinion is the singularity because there is a variety of different definitions out there um, Ray Kurzweil's being the most popular one. What is your take on the proper definition of the singularity? Well, first off, you're right in suggesting that there are a multiplicity of definitions out there, and even just the word singularity is kind of awful because, right, just unto itself, because it's kind of a a, a term by uh, analogy. Because I mean, the term is borrowed from cosmologies, mm-hmm. uh, an event singularity. Uh, from there, you can kind of spin off it any any way you want. Um, and, and some of the on the going definitions out there, uh, one of the earlier ones is that it is kind of, again, boring from that uh, the black hole analogy is that it's an event horizon, that it's this part of the future that we really have no idea what's going to happen afterwards. And there's something about that part of the future that's going to be um, uh, thrown into turmoil that's being driven by things like accelerating change, 
uh, and uh, machine minds, artificial intelligence, and so on. But there's not really anything specifically said about it. And that kind of leads to the other definition out there, the Kurtzweilian definition, which is that's the singularity is essentially this Moore's law applied across the board to all technologies, including human intelligence, mm-hmm. and this this this, this steady. Um, exponentially, uh, in, uh, increasingly uh, uh, powerful uh, sense of progress. Uh, you know that's fed by this law of accelerating returns that will lead again to something that's not really well defined. Uh, again, which now we kind of fall back to uh, that event horizon idea. So that's my way of preambling uh, my own definition. It's not my definition, uh, but it's the definition that I think. Um, uh, carries the greatest weight in terms of what we actually mean by the singularity, and it isn't. It is a term that was, uh, or a definition that was put out by I. G. Good, mm-hmm. uh, and what he said very simply, very elegantly, is that it's it is simply an intelligence explosion. Yeah, and and I do like the word explosion in there in particular because it really gives a uh, I think more of a dramatic sense uh, as to what we're talking about here, and. Uh, if you kind of parse that down a bit further and be more specific about it, what he was talking about and what what other thinkers have, um, s- again, similarly uh, speculated about and are, con- are increasingly concerned about is you, as a, as a species, um, we are an intelligent species and we can kind of create these knowledge bases around ourselves and become definitely more than the sum of our own parts. Like, um, we are all intelligent, but we can't really, you know, enhance our intelligences more than than a real nominal amount. We go to school, we learn things. The internet certainly has been known to make us a bit brighter and smarter. And I think there's even studies out there that shows that things like the internet and uh, other such uh, things actually increase IQ. Um, but we can't really do it to ourselves all too profoundly. And similarly, collectively, uh, the collective intelligence of the human species is is pretty impressive. Uh, but still nothing that's, I think, um, spectacularly powerful in the sense of what we think may happen with the advent of an artificial superintelligence. And as neuroscientists and uh, computer researchers continue to hammer away at this uh, and, and, and amongst many other uh, fields of inquiry, I do believe it's going to be a converging effort to create an artificial mind or a machine mind. Mm-hmm. Um, that what's going to be interesting about it is that we will create this this alternative mind or this this machine mind in a different substrate than what the human mind uh, is composed of. We're we're as we say, we like the joke, we 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 compute out of meat. Um, <laughs> but the future a future mind that we've designed or emulated from the human brain uh, would be in a different substrate, most notably or most likely computer substrate. So it'd be a digital a digital based uh, intelligence. Mm-hmm. And this this basically follows the reasoning. Of um, uh, or basically is the underlying premise behind computational functionalism, the idea that the human brain uh, is a is a is a church is a church Turing machine, which basically means is a fancy way of saying uh, anything that uh, can uh, process any kind of information can be duplicated on a on a Turing machine. And uh, in other words, the brain is a computer; it's just working off. Um, a different kind of set of materials than a computer would, but that you can actually replicate those functions in uh, in a computer. And, and I take great pains to talk about this because it sets up the stage for um, recursive self-improvement, which again now gets down to uh, the whole point behind uh, this intelligence explosion. To, to create... Um, 
once we get to the stage where we've created a human equivalent artificial intelligence that's computer-based, uh, the, the potential at that point for it to keep on going uh, will s- certainly there, particularly if we endow it with the ability to modify it itself. So it's going to be smart. It's going to know its internal mechanisms. It's going to know how to improve upon itself or at least certainly to create a machine actually that might be smarter than itself. Um, Nick Bostrom has said that uh, an artificial intelligent brain on the order of uh, the human brain will be the last invention we'll ever have to make. At that point, it's going to take, kind of take over the show and continue to work at augmenting itself. Where we kind of get into some hazy territory now in terms of our ability to prognosticate is what happens from here. And some people think that there's going to be what's called a hard takeoff, which means that at this point, there's going to be a feedback loop that's so rapid, uh, so out of control, uh, maybe, maybe out of control may not be the right word for it, but it will be so rapid that it will create this, uh, this feedback loop of improvement. So it becomes smarter and smarter and smarter and smarter. And we're not talking about you know, twice as smart as a human or, or 10 times or not even 100 times. But now we're talking about orders of magnitude. Uh, we're talking about um, being able to process uh, quite, quite literally millions of times uh, more information and much quicker than the human brain can handle. And this is what leads to this idea of an intelligence explosion, that suddenly you have um, these machines that are um, capable of some pretty unbelievable feats. And this is where the, the concern kind of comes in is that uh, – you have these these intelligences that, and again, the theory here, and again, it's just the theory at this point, is that they will be able to execute on any goal that either they're given or that they've decided for themselves, or I suppose that they have maybe misunderstood. So if it wants to complete goal A, it will complete goal A, no matter how potentially bizarre or strange or even seemingly impossible it might seem to us now. Uh, so um, that's, uh, again, maybe perhaps why there is a, a, this bit of a mystery or even event horizon component, even to an uh, intelligence explosion type scenario. So I, I hope that wasn't overly um, convoluted <laughs> as a, an answer, but essentially if, uh, you're, if your listeners are looking to, to, for that definition in, in the midst of all the confusion, I think if you just kind of fall back to that intelligence explosion idea and then kind of work your way out from there, I think you're, you're, in, you're on much firmer footing than some of the other definitions out there, which are a bit ambiguous and ephemeral. So the natural next question then is, what is transhumanism and how does it relate to the technological singularity? And that is an excellent question. And I say it's an excellent question because too many times it's convoluted um, or not really properly I guess, explain what the relationship is. There are times when I realize that they have absolutely nothing to do with each other. Transhumanism is, uh, again, by definition, um, a movement, it's an ideology, it's a, it's a, a cultural aesthetic, whatever you want to say, even a bioethical uh, um, standpoint. It's the idea that humans can and should modify themselves um, using applied reason, um, of course, proper uh, you know ethical uh, considerations uh, to you know uh, to improve the human condition and to prove ourselves individually. And uh, the tripod that I like to talk about uh, for, for making that possible will be things like uh, altering our uh, our reproductive capacities and the ways that we go about reproduction. There are there's the morphological aspect, uh, so changing how our bodies work, 
whether that be through genetics, whether it be through cybernetics, whether it be through something we don't even necessarily even know, things like um, uh, nanotechnology, for example. So in infusing the body with molecular machines that will radically change how we function as living beings. And then lastly, very importantly, uh, and now potentially where we might find some interplay with singularity studies are our neurological liberties, uh, the ability to modify our minds as we best see fit. And that can be everything from uh, the the right and the the ability to explore different psychological uh, frames uh, through to memory enhancement, um, through uh, intelligence augmentation, co better concentration, uh, being able to compute uh, faster, for example, to think faster, to process more uh, bits of information per second. Uh, now you kind of get into this Kurzweil-type territory where you have this premise or this uh, hypothesis that the human mind uh, will eventually merge with our machines, our artificial intelligent artifacts, uh, that there won't be necessarily uh, a, a, a two-lane highway where we're kind of going down one road in, in terms of augmentation and, and the, uh, the machines are going down their own. There is this idea, and there, there's, you know, there's probably some merit to this idea, that we will in fact uh, augment ourselves in concert uh, with the machines. I, I, what My concern with that, though, is that while we're working, let's say, on a particular artificial intelligent uh, agent, and a, like let's say a specific one or a specific, let's say, set of agents, that the the hard takeoff scenario would happen with or without an entire species kind of tagging along without it. Um, so that's why I kind of have a bit of a concern that there's a conflation between uh, what is meant by transhumanism and what is meant by uh, the singularity. But again, just to entertain different uh, sets of scenarios, well, perhaps I'm wrong and perhaps uh, humanity will in fact, uh, again, I can't even imagine how this would play itself out, but that humanity could in fact augment itself or, or have individuals augment themselves um, in a way that they actually do transform into the so-called uh, superintelligent uh, beings and, uh, and, it, and it happens in that sort of a way. So um, again, I, what I hope I got there through this answer is showing that on one side there's completely nothing to do with it uh, and everything to do with uh, human enhancement and augmentation, but yet that there may actually be room, a little space where uh, we can in fact kind of perhaps uh, have individuals or whole fleets of individuals uh, enhanced to the degree that they can really, uh, either they enter the realm of the so-called post-human or they could even enter the realm of the kind of singularity type intelligence that we're speculating about. So it seems to me that, you know, in a sense, then all the transhumanism is saying is it's okay to be Superman. It's okay to have the x-ray vision or to do all kinds of things that we never thought we would be able to do. I mean, I, I, talk, I talked to Aubrey de Grey last week. Um, the previous podcast interview was with him. And he was giving me as an example... Uh, cochlear implants, which are getting so and so advanced that people with those uh, currently are almost able to hear as well as anyone without them with normal hearing. And the way that technology is developing, pretty soon uh, people with cochlear implants would actually hear much better than the rest of us. And that raises the question, for example, if you are a very famous concert pianist, um, would you want to have cochlear implants and why or why not? And wouldn't that make you a better pianist as a result of, uh, you know, undergoing that operation or that implant? Yeah, I've, I've followed this line of inquiry for many years. One of my earliest essays actually was entitled 
uh, and the disabled shall inherit the earth. And I think uh, Aubrey is very right to suggest uh, that eventually uh, rehabilitative technologies or assistive technologies will start to supersede the capacities of normal mm. human functioning. And a great example of that, one that I really love to bring to people's attention, uh, is the um, uh, the Oscar Pistorius story. He is the uh, the South African runner with the prosthetic yeah, yeah. legs who for a brief window was forbidden to mm-hmm. run against able-bodied athletes because the IAAC felt that he was uh, using an assistive device that really wasn't trying to mimic normal human functioning. Yeah. So what they did is they quickly scrambled and they added the addendum to their, their, to their constitution saying that nobody with springs, booster rockets, and The blah, cheetah blah, blah, legs. That, that's right, the, the, the so-called cheetah legs that he was yeah. uh, ultimately what they, what they were arguing, but they weren't able to provide the data to support this, mm-hmm. was that he was exerting less energy to get the speed that he was getting than uh, able-bodied athletes. And you know what? I have a feeling they're probably right. You know what? They're probably right. And um, although even though the, a, um, Pistorius and his camp, uh, they, had a, um, uh, they fought it and they won, and that's why he was able to qualify for the Olympics. Ultimately, uh, he didn't make the team, but he was at least able to qualify and run against able-bodied athletes. But these are early days uh, Nicola, early days because you can imagine, yeah. you know, what about the next generation cheetah and the next generation cheetah? Uh, you, you know, you're going to finally see some. Uh, you're going to finally see basically two leagues emerge. You're going to have the able-bodied games, and it could be again. Um, y- you've seen the Special Olympics. You know the different types of uh, activities that are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, that there may come a point when not only will records start to to be shattered by so-called now so-called disabled athletes. But the public's attention may start to gravitate more toward those games because they're simply going to be more cutting edge, more where uh, the best of what they do are, are competing. And, and back to your analogy of the, the, uh, the penis and the cochlear implant, well, what's therefore then going to prevent Joe Athlete, Joe able-bodied athlete, from going to his doctor and saying, you know, doctor, these, these legs that, that I, I was given… Too you know, slow for me. They're too <laughs> slow for me. They don't do me any good anymore. You know, I, I, I want you to cut them off. Uh, and I, I want you know these generation four cheetahs, you know that actually look and feel and uh, act more responsibly uh, than uh, my natural legs. Because and, and you know what, he'll be right that they will, for all intents and purposes, from a qualitative perspective, be superior to to what he was endowed with genetically. And boy, does that ever raise a whole host of uh, issues. Uh, of issues, you know? Because right now, I mean. Uh, uh, for example, people that's, that suffer from uh, body in, uh, identity integrity disorder, they are forbidden from from cutting off their limbs, even though it's their wishes, because it's considered self-mutilation. So we have mutilation laws out there that prevent you from doing that to yourself. So in other words, uh, there's going to be a lot of upset here uh, potentially in the future. But I do predict uh, that this will be an area where there's going to be more and more of a, a problem to kind of have definitions and rules and uh, regulations. Yeah, maybe our perception of uh, the so-called disabled people would turn into one of uh, super-enabled people. <laughs> yeah, and what's what's interesting and why I had this idea, but that the disabled shall inherit the earth is, it's there's something about our culture that says, you know, it's okay, it's okay that Oscar Pistorius has these legs that make him run faster than an able-bodied person. But even then, I kind of maybe maybe contradict myself because already with the IAAF. And their initial ruling, it's kind of like they're saying, you know, this is kind of weirding us out here a little bit. This is kind of freaky now. But more to the point, I do think that in general, let's take the cochlear implant, for example. That's a better example because there's a non-competitive aspect to it, is that 
we would be okay with it. If you, if, you know, if, if, if a, a formerly deaf person said, you know what, I, I can hear a much a broader uh, acoustical spectrum than the average yeah. person. Uh, would I, you know, bemoan that? Would I, you know, say, oh, that's not fair? Um, you, know, you know, it's funny. Amy Mullins uses that example. Amy Mullins is another disabled athlete mm-hmm. who has prosthetic legs. And uh, one day she showed up to hang out with her girlfriends. And she suddenly appeared as like a, I think like a, over a six foot one, six foot two. And her friend's like, what's with the height? And she's like, well, I just put on my tall legs today. And her friend <laughs> said to her, but that's not fair. <laughs> and Amy's like, what's fair, you know, got to do with like what, what we're competing here or like, you know, but that's, uh, there already is some rumblings and grumblings about that uh, those who are not within the normal boundaries of human functioning, uh, that uh, maybe there will be an area where they're, they're going to start to transgress. But uh, uh, it's definitely an, a fascinating area, uh, culturally at least, to, uh, to explore and examine a bit. That kind of reminds me a little bit of Tolstoy's famous uh, saying that always fair in love and war. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> but uh, to... To, to bring forth uh, another issue that I'm kind of concerned a little bit about here directly as a result of what we were just talking about, um, and that's specifically the risk of first adopters. When normal people start adopting body prostheses that are intended to enhance the abilities of so-called disabled people, um, there is that risk of first adopters or early adopters Say, for example, I consider myself in terms of software or technology to be a first adopter. So when a new edition of my favorite programs, be it, you know, operating system or something like that, comes up, I usually like to have it. So I definitely fall within the early adopter um, group. But when it comes to a bodily, um, a body prosthesis or something of that sort, I have to admit, <laughs> I am not as courageous. <laughs> yes. And uh, the risks are obviously qualitatively in a completely, at a completely different level. Absolutely. I mean, do you want to be the first guy who gets uploaded to a computer? Yeah. Uh, no, yes. I'll, I'll, I will not volunteer for that particular experiment. Uh, that's perhaps looking far too afield, but you bring up an excellent point, and that is um, uh, the whole early adopter and the whole testing phase uh, aspect of many of these technologies because we're not talking about putting on a pair of glasses. Uh, we're talking about something that's going to change your functioning to perhaps some pretty uh, serious degrees, even things like cognitive enhancer, enhancers, for example. What, what, how I'll answer that, um, basically, I mean, I'm kind of of two minds of it. And perhaps maybe I can kind of settle on an answer somewhere in the middle. But one part of me believes that we are already uh, a bit risk-averse as a people in terms of uh, early adoption. And I, when I say that, I think, for example, of the, the FDA in the United States and uh, the length of time it takes for uh, a new drug or procedure to hit the market, it, it's well over a decade. So there, there actually could be something that exists right now today that could, that could cure you of, let's say, a life-threatening ailment. Uh, or could actually uh, quite dramatically improve the quality of your life. But because of regulations and standards, and again, I'm not arguing necessarily against this, I realize testing has to be done. It has to be done. But that these persons are, they could actually lose their lives uh, as a result because they're, 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 they're denied access. Uh, a good example of some of this is some of the most cutting-edge research in artificial hearts. 
Yeah. With each passing generation of artificial hearts, it can only be tested on, I wouldn't even say late-stage patients. I am talking absolute devastatingly late-stage patients who actually are speculated to have only days or if not hours to live. Yeah. Uh, as an absolute, in other words, as a last resort. It's, yeah. tr- it's truly used as a last resort. Um, now, here's the other flip side of things. Um, as someone who writes about these sorts of topics, I get emails from time to time from people who are in these situations. Uh, I got an email from a fellow who was in a motorcycle accident and uh, um, was paraplegic and was basically said, can you direct me to somewhere where I can be a test subject? Uh, and that's one example of many. Uh, there are a lot of people out there who are like, look, hello, me, the waving their arms around, I will test this voluntarily. And you know what? If I die as a result of testing this, well, you know what? Uh, it's one step closer to you know, a therapy that works for somebody else who, who needs it just as badly as I do. And that is quite literally the sentiment, the sentiment that is put out there. And it's, a, it's an extremely noble sentiment. On the That's one half, there's certainly a self-serving aspect to it. But the fact that they're willing to kind of um, set aside their own interests for this is pretty astounding. And I think that this is a whole area... Uh, of potential test subjects, Volu- the, vo- the whole voluntary test subject area that is being completely ignored, I think, by uh, by a lot of um, uh, these companies and, uh, and being inhibited by a lot of the legislation that is out there. So, uh, I was, and by the way, just as, as an aside, a lot of the experiments that we do on animals these days uh, very likely have uh, analogs uh, in the hu- in the human world who would voluntarily do this for, let's say, even or not even voluntarily, but would do it for money. Um, and again, that's that's dangerous now because now you actually have to wonder: Are they doing it? Uh, are they putting themselves at risk for money? So I, I maybe retract that statement. But you get you you hear hear what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. But um, so that's kind of uh, that the early adopter issue. I mean, um, and back to the whole idea of us even collectively being perhaps a bit risk averse. Again, as a, as a bioethicist, you know, I need to be wary of of risk and, and potential harm. I mean, that's ultimately, you know, like a doctor is very much have to be, you know, in tune with any potential harm that is done. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, we get into a car every day, uh, and we know that that is the uh, by a bullet, it's the leading cause of accidental cause of death in society. But we don't ban cars outright. So I think there's also a bit of folly, I think, in ascribing zero risk to everything. There's there's going to be risk. Uh, regardless of what we do, you know, there's going to be unforeseen things, whether it be, you know, um, nanoparticulates in our, in our body that are going to be pollutants, you know, inside our body and toxins, uh, that's going to happen. Uh, you know, it's, ab- it's absolutely going to happen. And you're, you're going to have, uh, you're going to have problems, you know, with, with, um, let's say, um, uh, sort of certain genomic procedures that are done, you know, uh, postpartum, uh, there's going to be, you know, weird side effects and weird things and deaths is going to happen. Um, not that I'm suggesting it's going to be great when these things happen, and I'm not even suggesting that we have to accept these uh, as they happen. But I think all I'm all I'm saying, all I'm putting out there is that we have to be realistic about progress and what it's going to mean in terms of some of the side effects and some of the uh, the fallbacks and setbacks that we'll have uh, as a result. And you know what? I, I hope as well at the same time that. Uh, you know that guys like Kurzweil are right, and that the computer scientists and their simulations are right, and that their models will get increasingly more sophisticated, such that we can test this stuff out before we actually apply it to people. I really see that coming. I mean, that we'll have virtual uh, biological systems in there, and we can digitally simulate uh, what we're going to do to their bodies and minds, and uh, we'll know beforehand, you know, the effectiveness of uh, of these of these medicines. Like I, I can totally imagine you know, simulated people with 
you know, particularly genetic constitutions and proclivities and all those sorts of things, and we yeah. test on, on on their systems. I mean, we're talking about something that's way in the future. Don't get me wrong. Like, can you imagine the, how much, the, the kind of crunching that would be involved to simulate, you know, an entire yeah. biological body? But uh, I think ultimately that is where uh, where we're probably going to head, such that we can uh, alleviate some of the uh, risk factors on um, uh, test subjects. And that would raise a number of other issues. For example. Um, what about the rights of those entities? I mean, if we are able to perfectly simulate them, would they be self-conscious? Would they be self-aware? I mean, if, if they uh, had the so-called neural correlates of consciousness, and we could yeah. identify functionally, if they're perfect yes, copies of a yeah. living being, then then, then Nicola, we're in a different area altogether. Yeah, <laughs> and this is I, I I spoke about this at Harvard um, in May. Uh, this was my topic. This is what I went there to speak about. Was that it was basically, I wouldn't call it a wake-up call because I think that a lot of the AI researchers are already pretty much aware of this. But as I discovered over the course of the conference, maybe not. But I basically tried to present a wake-up call that said, look, folks, you know, there's going to come a point in your research, in the work that you do, probably, you know, it might be 30, 40, 50 years from now, it doesn't matter. But the, the nature of your work and the object that you are working on is going to change qualitatively from a piece of property from one moment, whereas at the next moment, because you made a specific tweak, it is now a subject worthy of certain rights and protections. Yeah. Um, in the same way that, let's say, a test subject in a, in a uh, an animal in a, in a lab is now worthy of certain rights and considerations. Mm-hmm. Mind you, even that, I, as I say that, I'm a, I'm a bit in pain to say that because I know that a lot of these labs treat these animals like crap. Uh, and put them through awful conditions. So I, I'm not suggesting that <laughs> that that is a, a good place. But in a way, that's kind of my motive right now is that we have – right now, as a species, we've got over a thousand years of tradition that says we can poke and prod animals all we like. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to break those cultural norms and, and basically tell people that, look, uh, you know, a dog uh, or a, a rhesus monkey, it, it's, it's not your property to fiddle with in a lab. Uh, you just can't do that. But to change that sentiment because it's so culturally embedded is extremely difficult because people refuse to look at – um, the moral value of an animal in the same way that we look at the moral value of a human. So what I'm hoping to do and what I'm hoping to try to get the word out is that let's not, let's not embed that kind of culture uh, in the development of artificial intelligence. Let's start off on the right footing and let's be prepared. Let's be ready for that emergence of that, that conscious being uh, because that's essentially what we're talking about. I'm not talking about something that, again, would simulate, say, bodily functioning. Um, that's a completely mindless um, brainless, yeah, unsentient yeah. creature. I am talking quite specifically about a, about an entity that has conscious awareness, that is a, uh, even remotely sentient and has that subjective um, capacity. Uh, even most and most profoundly, if it has the capacity for uh, pain and suffering and mm-hmm. emotional awareness, then all the more uh, uh, we need to be aware that we've created such a thing and to be ready to protect it. Mm-hmm. Well, George, my blog's tagline is, will technology replace biology? So, in your opinion, and this is the question that I ask everyone who comes as a guest to Singularity uh, podcast, do you think that technology will replace biology? Well, um, biology is technology. Um, It's just a technology uh, that came into being through the processes, the autonomous processes of natural selection. It's some of the most profound technology that I've ever seen. Uh, you know, let's take a seed, for example, from, from a tree. Uh, that's the most brilliant 
perhaps next to the to the human brain, perhaps the, one of the most brilliant things I've ever encountered. Because what it does is this little this little device you plant it in the ground, and it quickly starts to convert um, itself and its surroundings, and most and most notably, it takes the energy from the sun and it converts it into this gigantic. Uh, this gigantic, you know, tree with with leaves and parts and stuff like that's incredible. Like, mm-hmm. if you asked an engineer to, to construct that, he would obviously today. There's no way, not even would he not even know where to get started. So that to me is 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 definitely you know, um, is a, it's a, it's a it's a technological marvel. Where more specific to your question, will technology repl- replace biology? I think what you're really asking is is a Again, perhaps if I could, if I could maybe put words in your mouth and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think you're kind of wondering at what point do we cease to kind of become uh, intrinsically biological in, in the sense, in the natural sense, and start to have more of our parts, our, our components, comprised of synthetic uh, analogs, um, and in fact, uh, even outright termination of a corporeal existence. Will we, will mm-hmm. we become, you know, these uh, avatars in these? Uh, uh, massively spectacular supercomputers living virtual existences uh, in, in virtual and in, in practically immortal lives, and would that constitute being non-biological? These are kind of uh, questions of semantics, um, and and uh, I, I, again, it, it, I'd really it's hard for me to kind of answer that one way or the other. Uh, aside from saying that, way I look at it, and, and the term that I've used is that we certainly are, po- are poised to become a post-Darwinian species, and we may, we're already kind of there, but we're still subject very much to certain selectional processes. Um, but the goal is eventually to, and this is kind of the transhumanist holy grail, is to wrest control over uh, Darwinian processes and replace it with human intelligence so that we can start to guide our own evolution and guide our own um, makeup in terms of what we are as a species and how we function as a species, and if that implies that you know we will we will uh, remove all bio- what are so-called biological aspects of us, then that's probably what's going to happen. I, I know I really can't see our species remaining you know biological, at least not mostly biological. Um, you know I, I can't see that being part of its destiny. I've never really thought that it was going to be part of our destiny. And um, what form that will take, uh, whether it be completely cyberized uh, creatures or uh, uh, entities that live in uh, in supercomputers, that's still an open question. But um, in that sense, to answer your question, I think in that uh, by those kinds of definitions, yes, I guess we are moving away from the biological and more towards the um, uh, the technological in that sense. Mm-hmm. And that's precisely sort of the impetus behind my question. Um, Ray Kurzweil is often criticized for being too optimistic. Um, what, in your opinion, is our chance of surviving a technological singularity? Do you really want the answer to that? Well, absolutely, because I find that people always give me the unexpected answer. For example, I was talking to Michael Anisimov from the Singularity Institute in one of my previous podcasts, and a he rated our chance at about 25%. I would go, I would say it's almost nil. <laughs> yeah, I say it's almost nil. And uh, the data point that I bring to everyone's attention uh, to justify such a claim is the Fermi paradox. Uh, the Fermi paradox being the uh, observation that we live in a completely uncolonized galaxy uh, at a time when, at a time in its history when it should have been colonized many times over, by, over now by the kinds of intelligences that we're talking about. 
Now, I, 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 I risk saying outright nil because I recognize that there is a potential scenario there that, that is a plausible one worth exploring. And that is uh, one that's kind of put out uh, uh, by, um, by a number of people, but most prominently, I think, by the philosopher and scientist John Smart. And that is the idea that we're increasingly working our way into smaller areas of matter, energy, space, and time, what he calls messed space. And that space is an absolute no-go for us. That's just, that's just not anywhere that we're going to be remotely interested in, in, in exploring. And that we are basically going to shrink ourselves down to, um, again, extremely compressed, um, a, a compressed size where at that, at that point he believes, now perhaps we're getting into the realm of metaphysics, actually not perhaps, I think it's most certainly the realm of metaphysics, where we're starting to get into some universe engineering where we start to perhaps engineer our own black holes or existing black holes and spawning basement universes. And now you can see why we're getting into some really crazy metaphysical territory. Mm-hmm. But, and that's why part of me thinks, maybe not. Maybe we're just going to, the more elegant solution, what I say definitely is, uh, uh, comes more into tune with Occam's razor, which is, you know, which is, and I hope I'm not paraphrasing the Occam's razor uh, um, rule too badly, and that is really when you strip it all down. That's the most simplest, elegant solution is probably the right one. And for me, it's it's uh, well, it's, it pains me to have to admit that this is the simplest explanation. But uh, human ex- mass extinction is definitely the simplest explanation for why we see an uncolonized galaxy. And this is a thesis put out by uh, the economist Robin Hanson. Uh, he coined the phrase "the great filter." Uh, basically, the great filter being this hurdle that a species just cannot, it cannot get past this particular phase in its development. Uh, to his credit, um, Hansen says what we don't know is whether we are in front of this hurdle or behind this hurdle. <laughs> so for example, um, you know, the, the transition from eukaryotic to prokaryotic cells could in fact be a great filter. That if you go across the galaxy and across the universe, the chances of that happening are 0.000000 as far as you can go. It just doesn't happen except it happened to us. We are past that great filter. And maybe there are other uh, intelligences out there that maybe simultaneously, um, or or let's say roughly contemporaneously, uh, have also uh, managed to get to this particular stage. And that we are now, we're way past the great filter, and now the sky is the limit, universe is the limit, and maybe we will in fact survive the singularity and go on to explore every corner of the galaxy. But I think more likely is that we are still, unfortunately, in front of that uh, great filter. And I think there's increasing evidence to support that particular hypothesis. Uh, not only are we already in the possession of apocalyptic weapons that can make that happen, uh, I think it's no small miracle that we already haven't destroyed ourselves with nuclear weapons, but we are going to be increasingly in the possession of more and more powerful apocalyptic technologies, such as nanoweapons, uh, robotic armadas and robotic swarms, um, even pathogens that could be wor- work to wipe out virtually every person on the planet and basically set us back to the Stone Age. Uh, these are, I mean, it's, I use the analogy we're going to be spinning plates. Right now we're just spinning one plate, that nuclear plate. And it's okay, we can do that. I can spin that. But there's going to be another stick with a plate on it. I'm going to have to start running back and forth between those two. And then there's going to be a third and a fourth and a fifth. Eventually one of those plates is going to fall. And that's all that's required to end the whole show. One mistake, one accident, one act of deliberation. Um, and it's done. It's over. And I think uh, I, I stand in great fear that that's in fact uh, our destiny, and that's why I would I put our chances much much lower than most of the people, uh, the, the, my colleagues and, and and other people who are make this a, a big part of their uh, uh, their studies. 
So do you consider yourself to be an optimist or a pessimist? (laughs) (laughs) You know what? You have to be an optimist. (laughs) After all, you just said... What, am I, what are you going to do? You know, am I going to like you know, wake, you know, not get up in the morning tomorrow? Like, oh, well, woe is me and woe is the species. No, hell no. You know, it's, uh, uh, kind of, I think one thing that happens, uh, if, you, if you buy into too much pest, even though it might be realism. Okay, let's, let's, let's separate optimism from realism for just a second here. Uh, and maybe in, in, enter a bit of pragmatism here. That, you know, if, if, if you constantly live in, in pessimism and in doubt, you do become a very, I think, um, gray and jaded and cynical person and i don't want to be that guy uh you know and at the same time i realize that i don't i I may i may be wrong you know Uh, i hope i'm wrong and i want to i want everyone to prove to me that i'm wrong you know let's keep going i mean we're it's 2010 and we're still going on strong we got some problems as civilization there's no question nothing existential though at this point um, even the global warming, uh, many experts think as bad as it is, and I don't want to downplay it. Uh, it's not an existential risk. It's a catastrophic risk, but not an existential risk. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, we're, we're doing okay. So, you know, so far, stay the course. Let's get through this. But like so many of my colleagues will admit, uh, it's this awful, you know, event horizon, this, this singularity in the future that is painting a particularly uh, un, uncertain picture. But I think even more so. Uh, I really think that nanotechnology is uh, it could that could really be um, the bugaboo. That 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 might be the silver bullet that does it in for us, because you can create you know almost any kind of a uh, a device. Uh, I think it's Robert Friedis, and and he may have retracted this claim, but there is a paper out there you can you can check this out. Uh, the nanotechnologist theorist Robert Friedis speculates that we can have what he called uh, can you call it ecophagy. Uh, with nano devices such that you could actually destroy the entire atmosphere within about a 48-hour period. Imagine that. That you just basically destroy the, the integral components of the atmosphere required to sustain biological life on this planet within a 48-hour span. All you need is, you know, a group or a country or whatever to just be that, that you know, jaded enough, uh, that... Um, you know, um, nihilistic enough uh, to, to to pull that off, and it's it's game over. So, if there is one thing that you would like our listeners to take away from this podcast interview with you today, what would be that thing? <sighs> hmm, that kind of put me on the spot there. I mean, um, one thing I don't want people to leave here with is an, maybe an over uh, an impending sense of doom. I mean, I, I, I didn't want, you know, to end on a, such a sour note, but at the same time, you know, as a, as a theorist, as a futurist, uh, it is my responsibility to kind of put out there what I think is going to happen. So there, I need to kind of, uh, you know, insert these kinds of uh, bits of, uh, you know, realism in, ter- in terms of uh, where we're headed. But like I said, I mean, I think what I, if I want to impart anything is maybe just a, uh, maybe just a sense of uh, that, if we apply ourselves collectively and get on these issues, I mean, that's what the Singularity Institute for Artificial Intelligence is about. It's what the Lifeboat Foundation is about. It's what the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies is very much concerned with. Is, you know, maybe if we see it coming, we can, we can deal with it. We always have, you know. We really, we haven't destroyed ourselves with nukes yet. Um, support these groups. Get active with these groups. Uh, whatever your particular specialty is, uh, if it's web design, you know, maybe help these groups, you know, improve their website. Uh, if it's marketing, maybe help these groups get the word out. Uh, if you're, uh, uh, you know, if somebody who's, who's a specialist in the very uh, areas that I've described, get involved with them 
and you know help them you know with their prognostications and, and meet the people uh, and, and get stimulate the people with whom you know they are the, the the key stakeholders in all of this. So that I think is um, is what I would what I'd put out there. If that is a genuine concern of yours, if you want to make that something that your you know your day to day activities are even if it's a hobby, something that makes you feel that you're you're contributing in, in, even in some small way to uh, to maybe mitigating these risks, then go for it. You know I would totally encourage and back you on that. So that's I think that's uh, maybe if anything I'd like to leave your listeners with that bit of a message. Well, <clears throat> before we bring our interview to a close. Maybe you should um, give some more information to our listeners about where they can find information about the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies and your blog also. Sure. Um, they're very easy to find. Um, the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies is simply IEET.org or just Google IEET and it'll be the first one that comes up. And my blog is Sentient Developments. And you can either just Google Sentient Developments or my name, George Dvorsky, and it will also come up. And you're also welcome to follow me on Twitter. Uh, my username is at George Dvorsky, just one word. Well, on that note, I would like to thank George Dvorsky once again for his time and wish him good luck in his work. Also, thanks to all the listeners of Singularity Podcast. I hope you all enjoyed listening to this interview as much as I enjoyed, enjoyed talking to George Dvorsky. This was another Singularity Podcast, which is a feature of singularityweblog.com where you can go and listen to the recording or download the interview in full. Thank you.